Okay, there are a couple of announcements. First of all, you can go ahead and start marking your calendar. Al can get this in the bulletin. Uh, Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible class on November the 15th will be moved to Tuesday night. Instead of Wednesday night, that will be on Tuesday night. Um, I will be speaking at... Uh, those of you who met Curtis when he was here, I will be speaking at his church for his um, fall revival on the 15th. And um, then on the, I think there's a, something in the bulletin announcing a potluck dinner on the 29th. No, we're not having it at all. That, that's solve that problem. No, we're not having it at all. Uh, we're we're a little larger than we used to be, and there's only like five tables. And if we had inclement weather, we would only be able to seat maybe 40 adults. I don't know where the rest of them would sit, and I don't know what we'd do with the kids. So uh, until we can figure out some way to handle things a little better logistically, we're really not um, set up. What we're thinking about, and I need to talk to Don Harris about this is um, a Christmas, Thanksgiving slash Christmas dinner and down at the fire station. So that will, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not opposed to having potlucks. I'm just opposed to doing it in such a manner that's, that's not real efficient or it's overly crowded and nobody has a place to sit. And without hot water here, that makes it difficult kitchen-wise. So it, it, we're just, we just need to work on some things. Right. Do what? Well, that's what I'm talking about because the rent's a good, from what I understand, the rent's a good price. Zero. <laughs> works, works for me. And then, um, do what? <laughs> Paid up front, yeah. And then the book is out, for those of you who weren't here Sunday, the book is out, Spiritual Warfare. Kriegel published it. Supposed to have been out in March, but it's grace that it's out at all. So I'm glad it is out, and that's here. And if you want to get a copy, then you can see me afterwards. They are $10. And I'm stating that specifically so that will go on the tapes so that people who hear the tapes, if they want to get a copy, they can order them. So make sure that stays on the tape. Uh, I have uh, about... Eight or twelve left, but I have eight boxes of sixty-four in a box coming. Don't worry, there's enough for everyone. Yeah, and they're only ten bucks. So, yeah, don't worry, we won't run out. There are more where where those came from. The other ones I I, I had had. Uh, nine sent out to L.A. and sold three, so the other six are on their way back here. So we will have more than enough. Anything else? I think that's enough. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. For all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word and to advance spiritually. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for confession if necessary, and then we'll start. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to study your word today. We thank you that we have the spirit who indwells us and who fills us, who teaches us and helps us to understand the things of your word and how to apply them in our lives. Now, Father, as we continue our study on dispensations, we pray that you would give us a greater appreciation of all that you are doing in human history for the outworking of your plan of salvation, ultimately for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, one other announcement, we need to work on this, and that is, uh, anybody, maybe training aides can do this, Louise. They're doing a great job up there in training aides for the kids downstairs, and we had a meeting Sunday with the Sunday school teachers, and our goal is to have the best Bible training for kids anywhere within three or 400 miles, if not more, and we're well on our way. Uh, we need to have a little... Uh, a poster or something that looks nice, something that looks uh, elegant, sophisticated, not something, just a piece of paper tacked on the door, suggesting that if anyone comes in late and Bible class has already begun, that they need to just walk up the stairs and sit in the... Uh, you can come in, Harold. I haven't started yet. Uh, you're just under the line that if anybody comes in late like like Harold just did... That they can, uh, that in order in, to avoid walking in in front of everybody and distracting everybody, that they ought to just walk upstairs. And uh, two strikes and one boy, you're out. And uh, they can just go upstairs and sit down rather than uh, traipsing down through the front, knocking shelves off and everything else. Okay, we are studying dispensations. We are studying God's plan for the ages as outlined in Scripture under the categories of covenants and dispensations. So far, what we have done in the first three lessons is to cover the basic concepts of dispensations, covenants, and the relationship of human history to the angelic conflict. Then, starting two weeks ago in the fourth lesson, we started with the first covenant, the Edenic Covenant, and the dispensation of perfect environment. Then last time we uh, finished looking at that and looked at the second covenant, the Adamic covenant, and just got on the edge of starting the dispensation of human conscience. And so tonight we want to try to wrap up the Adamic covenant and the dispensation of human conscience and then move into the Noahic covenant and the dispensation of human government. Now, to review you on the basic definition, a dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes 
for human history. And human history is really the outworking and the display in human history of God's grace, justice, righteousness, and love as a resolution of Satan's uh, attack on God's character as a result of God's decision to assign Satan and the fallen angels to eternity in the lake of fire. So we see that human history is going to display certain things that could not be seen or apparently were not evident in eternity past before the creation. This is why you have a number of passages which we've gone over which emphasize why the angels or that the angels are looking into human history. They're observing things they long to look into and they are continuously observing everything that goes on and how God deals with mankind and how God's grace and justice work together in human history because apparently this was not demonstrated under the, uh, for lack of a better word, under the administration, the angelic administration in eternity past. A second aspect of the definition, a closely connected but not interchangeable word, is the word age from the Greek word ion, which introduces the time element. Dispensation emphasizes God's administration, his management of history, Ion introduces the time element. And then third, God manages the entirety of human history like a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of his administration, determined by the level of revelation he has provided up to that time in history. So that brings in the idea of progressive revelation. Each era, God reveals more about his plan and purposes and more about himself than those earlier. How much someone like Abraham or uh, Moses actually saw or knew, there are certainly hints in Hebrews chapter uh, 11 that suggest that they knew and understood more than Genesis suggests. But as far as the average everyday Christian went, there was not that much that was known. There is clearly an addition of revelation from generation to generation. And then fourth aspect of the definition, each administrative period is characterized by specific revelation that specifies responsibilities, a test in relation to those responsibilities, failure to pass the test, although that's not always present, and God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. And we saw that man is created to resolve the angelic conflict. So one aspect that we're bringing in in each of the dispensations is a conclusion with how that, how it relates to the angelic conflict. Now we have established a chart here of the different covenants that there are three Gentile covenants. These really apply to everyone because Uh, Even though you have the Abrahamic covenant that singles out the Jews, they are still under the Noahic covenant. First covenant is in the Edenic covenant in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, which ended with the fall. Then there's the Adamic covenant, which ends with the flood, followed by the Noahic covenant, which continues. As long as we see a rainbow, there's the promise that that there will be uh, no worldwide destruction of mankind by water. Then there are the Jewish covenants, the unconditional or permanent covenants. The first is the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. There are three aspects to it, land, seed, and blessing, each of which is further developed 
in subsequent covenants, the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 30, Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. And then there is the conditional or temporary Jewish covenant, the Mosaic covenant explicated in Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 40. Now, as far as the dispensations go, the the Old Testament period is summarized under the heading of the theocratic dispensations because they focus on the rule of God. Uh, or, excuse me, that should be theocentric dispensations. Theocentric dispensations because they focus on the person of God as opposed to the Christocentric dispensations of the Messianic age and the current church age which focus on the person of Christ. The first age is the age of Gentiles, which goes from the creation to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Edenic covenant is God's original covenant established by man, though the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1. It is used in Hosea, where it is stated that Adam broke God's covenant, so that was clearly a covenant given in Genesis 1. 26 through 28. It is the age of human perfection or dispensation of human perfection. Ends with the fall when God establishes the Adamic covenant. Now, that's how far we've gotten so far. We are at the conclusion of the Adamic covenant coming up on the dispensation of human conscience, which will end with the flood and the Noahic covenant instituting the time of civil government. All of this, of course, occurs uh, some 2,000 plus years before the cross. Now, last time when we came to the Adamic covenant, I made a comparison between the original Edenic responsibilities pre-fall and the curse post-fall. This is important to understand, and I want to review this again so you have it in mind when we get to the Noahic covenant, because we will see that there are parallels between these three covenants that are given to the Gentiles. And it's important to understand that because they ultimately relate to man's purpose on the planet, which is to serve as God's representative. But that was warped and distorted because of the fall. Under the uh, Edenic covenant, man was to be fruitful and multiply, but the womb is cursed with pain and suffering in the Edenic covenant. So that the original mandate now has problems. It is difficult. It is painful. The woman was designed to be man's helper, his assistant, but now there is authority struggle. She has a desire to control the man. And the word there in Hebrew, the woman's desires for the man, is a word to desire to usurp authority, usurp control, and that enters the war of the sexes. Man was to subdue the earth, and now the earth is cursed and produces thorns, and so it is a difficult task, and there is continual struggle between man and nature. Man was to rule over the animals, but the animals are cursed. I want you to notice what happens. There's a progression here. Man's to rule over the animals. There's perfect harmony in in the perfect environment of the first dispensation. Then the animals are cursed. There's a curse on the animals in Genesis 3, and then there's another progression at Genesis 9, and that is that man puts fear, uh, man, I mean, God puts fear into animals for man. So there's no fear between animals and man under the, in the age of human conscience. And that 
era between the creation and the flood, but there will be fear after that. Every plant is given for food initially, then it, the plants of the field only after the Adamic covenant, and when we get to the Noahic covenant, man is going to stop being a vegetarian and he's told to eat meat. So you see there are changes. What, what the point I'm making is that with sin, each successive stage of sin and judgment, man's environment, it gets worse. We're a long way from the... We're not one step removed from the perfect environment of Eden. We're two steps removed from perfect environment of Eden. The environment from fall to flood was much less than perfect environment, but it's even worse now. I mean, man hasn't just polluted a few rivers and dumped some chemicals into the soil and caused uh, a number of things like the Love Canal and other problems like that. Man has screwed up the environment much, much worse. And what that tells us is that the ultimate solution isn't a political solution, it's not an ecological solution, it is a spiritual solution. And only when man returns to doctrine and has a right understanding of his relationship to creation can man develop a, a correct view of ecology and the proper and responsible use of the planet. See, what happens is you have all, all this ecology movement today, and what most people don't realize is it's ultimately a religious movement. There is a strong religious dimension to it, and even though many people may not understand that, the people who are at the top and who are the major uh, ideological thinkers in the envir modern environmentalist movement are not operating from a Christian view of man and nature, they are operating from a polytheistic view of man and nature, that man is just another cog in the wheel because of evolution. He's no different ultimately than a snail or a slug or a monkey. He's just another creature, and so man needs to live with nature without using nature. And that is pure paganism. That's why why uh, American, Native American Indians never advanced. That's why your aboriginal tribes in Africa and Asia never advanced, is because they had a view, a pagan view of nature, that man's just another part of nature, and so he's not to use it. He is to leave it the way he found it. And see, that is, so there's many concepts that are floating around in the environmentalist philosophy that have their roots in pantheism, the worship of Mother Earth, Gaia Earth, and all of this, um, which, of course, it's okay to talk about that aspect of spirituality in the public schools, but it's not okay, to, of course, to mention God or to pray to Jesus, pray to God or mention Jesus Christ or even pray at a football game or a graduation anymore. All of which indicates that, that uh, we, we fail to realize there's no neutrality. Everything, ultimately, no matter what it is, goes back to a religious frame of reference. And so the frame of reference that's being promoted is either going to be consistent with the Bible or it's going to be antagonistic to the Bible. There's no such thing as neutrality. There's no middle ground. When the question is uh, that we need to teach values in public schools, the question is whose values are you teaching? Values come from somewhere. They don't just drop out of thin air. They ultimately have some sort of metaphysical, epistemological basis and that's either going to come from the Bible or it's going to come from somewhere else. But if it comes from somewhere else, eventually, if it's pushed to its logical conclusion, it will become antithetical to the Bible because it's part of the cosmic system. And remember, the twin poles of the cosmic system are arrogance and, and uh, antagonism 
to the Word of God. So there's all kinds of things that are going on today, and if you can understand the biblical framework, it really helps helps us to be able to properly critique the ideas that are going on, especially in the political realm uh, this year specifically. Okay, the next category, man was created to serve, which has the implication of worshiping God and to guard and protect Eden. Uh, The idea there is there's something to guard it from, which would be the presence of a fallen creature. So the idea there is implicit that uh, Satan has already fallen when man is created to guard Eden. Man is, uh, uh, because he fails, he is expelled from the garden uh, in Eden, he's given the responsibility not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of the uh, curse, spiritual death brings physical death. Okay, that sort of brings us up to where we are in Genesis chapter 3 and the next dispensation. This outlines, under the curse section, that pretty much outlines the nature of the Adamic covenant and which is a revision of the Edenic covenant. It is, had to have been revised because of the fall of man and introduction of sin. This brings us to the next dispensation, which operates under the Adamic covenant. And it is called, although I don't like the term that much, I recognize this is one that's most commonly accepted if I can come up with a better one along the way, I will. It's called the dispensation of human conscience or self-determination. Misspelling there. Self-determination. We will look at uh, about eight categories. Who the central person is. We'll do this on every dispensation. This gives you a bit of an outline to uh, develop in your notes under each dispensation. Each dispensation involves a central person. We'll talk about the name for the dispensation, the responsibility during that period, what God expected of mankind and believers during that period, the test of that dispensation, how man failed during that dispensation, the consequent divine judgment on man during that dispensation, how God displayed his grace. Remember, that's related to the angelic conflict aspect, and then the volitional issue. So these would be the eight points we'll cover in every dispensation. Now, the central person in the age of human conscience or self-determination is Adam. God makes his covenant with Adam, and he is the first man, the only man on the planet at the time of the fall. So God makes a contract with him and therefore with all of his descendants. Uh, He and the woman, who is renamed Eve at that point, are expelled from the garden, and they begin to uh, fulfill the mandate to multiply and fill the earth. And they start having children, Cain and Abel, and then Cain kills Abel, and Abel is replaced by Seth. But they had many other sons and daughters, and somebody sooner or later is going to come along and say, well, Who did they marry? Well, they married their brothers and their sisters. because There is no prohibition against uh, the marriage of close relatives, including brother and sister, until you get to the Mosaic Law. 
uh, Abraham and Sarah. You remember the episode when they went down to Egypt and he entered. He was afraid that Pharaoh would look upon her as his, and want her, lust after her, and kill Abraham to get her. So he decided to be uh, to solve the problem on his own terms and lie about it. Not an uncommon solution to problems for man. And uh, he, but he only told the half truth. See, that's how we convince ourselves it's not really a lie. It's only half lie. He said she's my sister. She was his half sister. And uh, when Isaac married. Um, uh, Rebecca, uh, she was a cousin. And that is because at this point in the development of the human race, God has created a tremendous gene pool. In fact, all the genetic, genetic developments in the human race since Adam were all encoded in Adam. So that there's the, 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 the difficulty or the problem that develops from uh, too close of a union in producing children isn't there because there's so, such a vast uh, uh, such a host of options, of genetic options that are available that it's not going to produce any problems. So for that reason, there is no problem with uh, brother, sister marrying, having children at this stage in the development of the human race. So the key person is Adam. Now, there is no central government. There is no uh, delegation of authority other than to the head of the household. So the patriarch rules, it's family altar, family sacrifices, and so the name that has been designated for this dispensation is that of human conscience because there doesn't seem to be any higher authority established by God to govern the affairs of mankind other than the individual volition and conscience. So it's up to each person to govern himself, and you see the failure of that in Cain and, and continuous failure and those uh, who follow him, outlined in Genesis chapter 4, his, his various descendants. And what this is demonstrating is that man on his own is incapable of controlling the sin nature and the damaging social effects of sin. Man on his own is unable to solve the sin problem. He's unable to control his own sin nature, and he's unable to deal with the social consequences of sin, and that is all part. What we'll see is a stair step in each different generation, in each different dispensation. God is going to show that it's not environment, it's not something other than man. It is basically man's own nature, his own negative volition, his own sinful choices that are the cause of his problems. It's not environment, it's not government, it's not who he's married to, it's not his children, it's not his parents, it's not his education, it's not his. Uh, poverty level. It is his own sin. So what we're seeing here is a situation where there's no established authority and it just runs amok. And so God is going to demonstrate the necessity of man having, being in a place of authority. Remember, this goes back to the angelic conflict problem. Satan is uh, not oriented to God's authority. He wants to be his own authority. So God is demonstrating under human conscience that Creatures cannot function under their own authority because they will always end up in sin and self-destruction. It's, in, it's incapable of surviving. So the responsibility, the central person is Adam. The name of the dispensation then is called conscience or self-determination. It extends from Genesis 3.9 through Genesis 8.14. Then the third point is the responsibility of this dispensation, 
and the responsibility is to the Adamic covenant to still to multiply and fill the earth and to uh, operate under that covenant and the original covenant as revised by the curse of Genesis 3. The test is whether or not they will fulfill the divine mandates for the spiritual life, which specifically focuses on animal sacrifice. Now, obviously, there's a lot of information about this dispensation we don't have, so to a certain degree, we're, we're dealing with very, uh, very cursory uh, episodes in the Old Testament, and so we can just extrapolate a little bit from that. The test had to do with animal sacrifice. We see the failure of uh, Cain because he brings the fruit from the field, what he has produced, as opposed to Abel, who brings that which God has stated. He brings an animal sacrifice, a lamb without spot or blemish. So the failure is that man continues to try to solve problems on his own. But even in the midst of this, there are still those who will follow the Lord. And each time there's a person, whether it's in that dispensation or the present dispensation, who seeks to follow the Lord and apply doctrine, then it is just another evidence against Satan. And we're going to get into that when we get into the next uh, dispensation, talking about how testing is provided to give evidence against Satan in this stage of his trial, which is the appeal trial. He has appealed God's verdict of everlasting punishment. So there's a test, the animal sacrifice, the failure is that will man follow divine revelation or, he, or, or uh, which informs his conscience or will he set himself up as his own authority in violation to God's authority. And the point that God is trying to teach is that man must rely exclusively on divine grace and that human resources and the creature's own authority are inadequate to resolve the consequences of sin. Man fails totally. We see murder in chapter 4. We see perversion in the rest of uh, chapter 4 on into the, uh, uh, the, the descendants of Cain. And then by Genesis 6-5, we're introduced to the angelic infiltration. Genesis 6-5, when the sons of God come down and look on the daughters of men and take them as wives. And it is an attempt by Satan to destroy the purity, the genetic purity of the human race. And because of that, there will be divine judgment, which is the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. And the purpose for the flood is to destroy the impurities in the human race. And if you look at Genesis 6, it says over and over again, that all the mountains were covered, all the earth was covered, every man, every beast was killed. All those words imply that, that the flood was universal. From the day it started raining until the day they came out of the ark, approximately 367 days took place. 360 days till they touched down, then they waited a week before they came out and sacrificed. So it took a year that they were in the ark. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the waters continued to go up for another 120 days, and then they prevailed for uh, about 90 more days before they began to recede. And it was during that time that the earth went through tremendous geological upheaval. Uh, Most of the mountain ranges were developed. The Grand Canyon was developed. A number of other things happened during that time or just subsequent to the flood as the earth was drying out 
and was writing itself after this global catastrophe. So this is the horrendous universal or worldwide divine judgment that wipes out the pre-Noahic race, the antediluvian race, because the genetic purity of the race had been destroyed. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who lived at that time, other than Noah and his family, were some kind of a hybrid race, angel, human. But what it suggests is that, in, in terms of population growth, that the angel angelic infiltration had uh, reached a certain level that at, at sort of a critical mass that from that, if it had been allowed to continue, eventually it would have uh, destroyed the genetic purity of the entire human race. So God had to nip it in the bud, so to speak, and stop it before it got any further. But even though there was divine judgment, grace always precedes judgment. We see this principle again and again in Scripture. And God gave man warning, and Noah preached for uh, 120 years, and still no one responded. The only ones who responded were in Noah's immediate family, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. And then they, they survived the flood and become the parents of the uh, post-Diluvian civilization. So everybody here ultimately traces themselves back to, um, looking around here, you all look like everyone here probably goes back to Japheth. I don't know that anybody here would trace themselves back to Ham or to uh, Shem unless you happen to be Jewish or have Jewish blood in you. Then you might go back to Shem. So uh, we all go back to Noah, though, not just to Adam. We all go back to Noah because we all got off the ark in Noah and his three sons. The volitional issue. For salvation, the issue was belief in the promise of the seed of the woman. Belief in the promise of the seed of the woman, that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent, and that God would provide salvation. So it anticipated a coming Savior. The spiritual life was based on ritual of uh, animal sacrifices and the family altar, family sacrifices, and faith rest. That is, the application of faith to the promises of God as revealed during that age. I think that there was a lot more knowledge of God. I think there might even have been a, an antediluvian canon, but there's no real scriptural indication of that. That's just my personal opinion. One of the things that I use to substantiate that, though, is that in Genesis chapter 6, there is, in about verse 3, God says that my spirit, and the King James Version says, my spirit will not abide with man forever. That is what's called, the word translated from the Hebrew, translated abide, is a hapax legomena. That means that it's used only one time in the Hebrew Old Testament. So we really don't know what that word means. The only way that you can derive a meaning of a hapax is to look at the context and to look at cognate languages. And the fascinating thing about studying Semitic languages is that they are very close cognates, much closer than Latin languages. If you studied French, Latin, Spanish, uh, other uh, languages heavily influenced by Latin, you'll see how close they are, that uh, sometimes you can see a word in one language and it just has a different ending in another language. It's very similar. You can figure out what it means. 
But in, in uh, your Semitic languages all operate on a what's called a trilateral root for your verbs, just three consonants, no verbs. Now, one language may put in words, verbs like that. The next language may put in, uh, I mean, excuse me, vowels like that. Uh, another language may put in other vowels and maybe an ending. But the consonants are the same. So you can look at Arabic or Akkadian or Ugaritic or, or Hebrew, and you can look at a sister language, and you can often figure out what that word means. And the Akkadian cognates to the Hebrew word translated abide don't mean, uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, translated my spirit will not strive with you forever. The, the, the Hebrew cognates there translated uh, trans, which translate that word strive, the Akkadian cognates indicate abide. So I think the best translation, based on the knowledge we have, is that God says, my spirit will not abide with man forever. And the suggestion there is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity in some sense, were present on the earth, at least the Holy Spirit was, in that antediluvian period which suggests that since there was no authority for man, no family authority, no judicial authority, that God was the one who was functioning as the judicial head on the earth at that time. He was still operating out of Eden, which is the throne of God. And man was forbidden there to enter into Eden because of the cherub that was placed there with the flaming sword. But all through that period, Eden is still on the earth, and the cherub is still outside of Eden, swinging the flaming sword, keeping man from access to the tree of life. That's destroyed by the flood. So my personal view is that, that um, uh, during that time, there was a much more revelation of God than we're told of uh, in the brief survey of that history in Genesis chapter 6. And we would probably be amazed at what took place during that time, but... That is under the veil that hasn't been revealed to us, hasn't been lifted in divine revelation. So the volitional issue for salvation anticipates the cross. For the spiritual life, it's based on ritual and the faith rest drill. Then finally, we come to the angelic conflict, how this played a role. And during the Old Testament, Satan is trying to prevent the cross. He understands that God has a plan of salvation, which was announced in Genesis 3.15, and that God is working towards that goal. So Satan's job is to try to stop it in some way to prevent God from providing a solution to the sin problem and thereby causing God to having to either violate his own character or break his promise or something along those lines. So this attempt in the age of the human conscience is, for, is that Satan attacks through the genetic purity of the human race. And this brings in the whole attack from the sons of God in Genesis 6. Now the phrase sons of God in the Hebrew is the phrase B'nai Ha Elohim. And that term, that phrase, although I think there's one place where you have sons of Adonai, this technical phrase, B'nai Elohim, 
is used about eight or nine times in the Old Testament. And every single time, it refers to angels. Specifically, it is used of such in, um, in Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2, referring to a convocation of angels before the Supreme Court of Heaven when Satan comes forth from the sons of God and brings a charge against Job and says basically, well, the only reason Job obeys you, God, is because you bless him. He's wealthy. He has vast holdings. You've been really good to him, and he only uh, obeys you because you're good to him. So if you let me take care of him and bring some suffering into his life, then uh, we'll see who he really, uh, how, how deep his loyalty really is. So that was the purpose of Job's attack, which we'll look at in depth when we get to the next dispensation where it belongs. But the point is that the phrase Beneha Elohim refers to angelic beings, and in this case, demons, who are able to take on material form and function. Now, I'm fully aware that there is a passage in Matthew. In fact, we will get there on Sunday morning. There is a passage in Matthew that deals with the fact the Sadducees are trying to bring up something, trip Jesus up, one of their typical little uh, attacks on Jesus because the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. But they still tried to trip up the Pharisees with little test questions like this. So they tried to trip up Jesus. And they said, okay, there's a woman who is married to a man who has seven brothers or six brothers. And he dies, and so she marries the next brother. They don't have children. He dies. She marries the next brother. goes all the way down the line. And she marries all seven brothers, and they all die. Now, the question that they want to raise is whose wife is she going to be in the tribulation? I mean, in the uh, in heaven. Of course, the question I want to know is, is there a grand jury investigation? Come on, wake up. She's married to seven brothers. They all die. Uh, one after the other. So the Sadducees want a question from Jesus, and Jesus says, well, it's not going to matter in the resurrection because we will not marry or be given in marriage just like the angels in heaven. So somebody always raises that that objection and says, well, the angels don't marry. So how could they have children? Well, the angels are also made out of a different material function than we are. They're immaterial. They're creatures of light, it seems, from the suggestion of Scripture. But they're able to take on human form and function. For example, uh, when two angels accompany the Lord to visit Abraham in his tent, and they sit down, they eat a meal. They eat and they drink and they have all the physical bodily functions of a human being. Well, the same, apparently they're able, they were able at that time to take on a material form and function and so they transformed themselves into a uh, human material bodily form that had uh, sexual capability and they took uh, women to be their wives and so you have angels, plus humans, and the result is a hybrid race. It's an attack on, on the purity of the human race, and this survives in mythology. The stories about the gods who came, da- came down to earth and would grab uh, uh, human women and rape them or have uh, sex with them and have children. Uh, Hercules and others were half man, half god. This is just a 
faint reminder of the actual events that took place uh, in, prior to Genesis chapter 6. So this was the angelic attack on the purity of the human race, and this is why God had to destroy the human race except for Noah and his family, and so that the Messiah who was to come would be true humanity and not have a mixture. If there was a mixture, that would prevent him from being the Savior of mankind. Well, that concludes the first or second dispensation of, of uh, human conscience. And man fails, God judges through the worldwide flood, and then establishes his covenant again with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. So we will look at the Noahic covenant and the dispensation of human government, beginning with uh, four points. The scripture related to the covenant, the persons involved in the covenant, the provisions of the covenant, and the current status of the covenant. Those are the four uh, categories that we will look at whenever we talk about a covenant. First of all, the scripture. The covenant is given in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. The persons involved are specifically God, party of the first part, and Noah, party of the second part. Noah is the representative head of the entire human race, just as Adam was the representative head of the entire human race with the Edenic and Adamic covenants. So all humanity, therefore, is descended from Noah and his wife, and therefore we are all part of the uh, Noahic covenant. We do not escape just because we may not agree with certain provisions, such as capital punishment or the eating of meat. There are seven provisions for the covenant. Seven provisions. The first provision, which reminds you of a previous provisions in both the Edenic and Adamic covenant, is that man is to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Not to stay in one location, but to spread out and to fill the earth. This is the same command given to Adam and Eve. What's not repeated here is the command to subdue the earth. That is left out. Adam was commanded to subdue the earth, to reign over it. That is not repeated. This was lost at the fall because man lost his authority over the planet with the fall because Satan stole it from him when man sinned. So that's why Satan is now the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. He has usurped that authority and stolen it from man. The second command, incidentally, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth despite all of the horrible prognostications of the uh, population control crowd for the last 200 years that man was just going to overpopulate the planet, is, uh, is not to be an issue for believers. You see, overpopulation is a function of technology and religion. It is not a function of numbers. Uh, an example, being from Texas, I was always fascinated by the Indians. 
I used to like to read all about the Apaches and the Comanches and um, used to enjoy going up to uh, the Panhandle in North Texas, which was about 800 miles from Houston. So that gives you an idea of how big Houston, uh, Texas is. And uh, I used to like to go camping out in the Paladura Canyon, which is just a big slit trench up in the Panhandle. And that uh, used to be where the Comanches would have their villages. And it was a great place to corral horses and, and even to run the uh, buffalo because they could just uh, fence off the two ends of the canyon and they had a ready-made corral. Well, back in those days, 150, 200 years ago, the uh, Native American tribes didn't know anything about uh, 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 refuse control and garbage control and sanitary engineering or, or recycling or anything like that. So they would just have their village in a place until they had pretty much mucked it all up and then they would just move on down the trail another mile or two until they mucked that place up. And then they would move on down the trail a little further. And that was pretty standard. And so because they had no concept of ecology, really, or taking care of things, and they had no technology for cleaning up after themselves, uh, the, the uh, panhandle of Texas was overpopulated with three or 4,000 uh, Comanches. They couldn't support anymore. They didn't have the technology. It's very dry up there, borderline uh, desert-type climate. They didn't have the technology to dig down and, and pull water out of the big underground uh, uh, reservoirs that are up in that part of the country that supply water and irrigation for the vast farms that are there now. They, they, because they lacked the technology, uh, they were pretty much overpopulated. They were stressing the land with just a few thousand people 150 years ago, and they needed to keep pushing on to new pastures and new uh, hunting grounds because they would wear out an area, and then they would have to go on. Well, now modern man, uh, you know, the Anglos come along, and they have a more advanced technology. They have a religion based on uh, Christianity that managed to utilize and develop all of the natural resources, and so they dig wells, they irrigate, they establish crops, and now they have a population up there in excess of, of several, uh, you know, 10, 20 million people living up there, all supported in land that 150 years ago couldn't support two or 3,000 Indians. See, it's not a function of numbers. It's a function of technology, religious presuppositions, and how you're utilizing the natural resources. So... Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 7, gives a command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's part of the Adamic covenant. As long as you see a rainbow up there in the sky, God has still mandated the human race to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the second category then, that, that, so that doesn't mean that you can't uh, exercise some uh, responsibility for financial reasons or what else. I'm just telling you that the idea from who was it, Malthus, back in the late 1700s, that we're going to overpopulate the earth and all die under some great famine is just hogwash. Jesus Christ controls history. God knows what he is doing, and God hasn't rescinded any of these mandates. So even though we don't like the overcrowding in some areas, there are other areas where there's no one, and there's very little crowding. And some of the areas, like India and some areas in Asia, 
have tremendous problems, not because there are so many people, but because their religious presuppositions prevent them from utilizing all of the natural resources that are there, and so there's great famine and, and many other problems. Okay, the second provision in the covenant. Man is to be feared by the animals. Uh, we read, it's, the text says, "...and the fear of you will be upon all the animals." So now there is fear between the animal kingdom and the human race. Before that, there was an authority relationship because man was to rule, but now there is fear and antagonism. This relates to the third provision, the next provision, which is the authorization of dietary changes. At this point, every living thing shall be food for you. Man is now authorized to eat meat. Prior to this, remember, he was a vegetarian and he could not eat meat. So God provides for, uh, continues to provide for the physical nourishment of man. There are many hypotheses that after the loss of the water vapor canopy around the earth, the introduction of more solar radiation on the planet, that there are certain nutrients available only from eating flesh that are necessary for human health and survival. But nothing uh, has been really done to, give, to provide any, any strong answers in, in terms of that, but those are at least some of the theories. God continues to provide for the physical health and nourishment of man. So basically he says, if it moves, you can eat it. And there are no restrictions. At this point, there are distinctions between clean animals and unclean animals, but not for the purpose of diet, only for the purpose of sacrifice. And when we get to the Mosaic Law, I'll make a point about the Mosaic Diet. There's always somebody that comes along every ten years that has a great, great diet. We're going to have great nourishment and we're going to have a Christian diet. We're going to go back to the dietary laws of the Mosaic Law because they were so healthy and uh, we'll all do a lot better. The point of the dietary laws of the Mosaic Law never had anything to do with health. You're always going to have somebody try to fool you on that because people can't think. I'm amazed at how people cannot think clearly about the Scriptures. If it was a problem that they didn't know how to cook pork long enough or they somehow wouldn't, uh, would, would eat raw lobster or raw shrimp and get some kind of disease, then the hygienic development, hygienic technology hadn't advanced any by the time of Peter in Acts 10. And in Acts 10, when Peter, God, Peter falls asleep and God gives Peter a vision and he's, Peter sees this enormous tablecloth descend from heaven with all the clean and unclean animals. You know, for the first time, Peter's looking at a tablecloth with raw oysters and shrimp and lobster and catfish and crawfish and all the really good stuff and, uh, and pork. God says, eat all of it. You can eat it all. Enjoy it. Peter says, oh, no, no. He's a little self-righteous and legalistic. No, not me. I'm not going to eat that. God says, look, I've declared it clean now. What? All of a sudden, the Jews learned hygienic laws. They learned how to cook pork and all these things. They didn't have anything to do with it. It had to do with the fact that God was teaching spiritual principles that many of these animals and these creatures that they were forbidden to eat under the Mosaic Law were scavengers. And they ate dead things. And death comes from sin. And so any time under the Mosaic Law that you were in the presence of a dead person or you, you touched blood or anything like that, you were ceremonially unclean. 
So God is making a spiritual point with the diet. It has nothing to do and had nothing to do with nourishment. So don't let somebody come along and try to uh, fool you into some biblical diet that will make you healthy and wealthy and wise. So there are now dietary changes, and they can eat anything. If it moves, eat it. Fourth, there is a limitation. Don't eat or drink blood. Don't eat or drink blood. This does not mean that you can't eat a good, rare prime rib, which is the only way you should eat prime rib, uh, or lamb. Uh, It's a prohibition of drinking blood. And that is one reason why you always see some sort of blood-drinking ritual in demonic or satanic cults. But the point is that God is making His blood is sacred because it is the means by which life is sustained. That, that when it talks about life is in the blood, it's not talking about the fact that the soul is in the blood, but that without blood there is no life, and so there needs to be a respect for life, and this is evidence of it, because blood is necessary for life, there should not be any drinking of blood. Verses 5 and 6 is the authorization and mandate. It's not a suggestion. It's not, okay, you can do it if you want to. You can do it if you feel like, uh, like the government's going to do it correctly. If there are no mistakes, uh, then you can exercise capital punishment. You're supposed to exercise capital punishment and don't you think God was omniscient enough to realize that we would make a few mistakes? Now, I'm not saying that to justify the fact that there are inequities in the judicial system. I am saying that because you do not use the fact that man is flawed to justify a no capital punishment position. And we have to be very careful right now because there are certain statistics coming out that suggest that there are inequities in the system that the anti-capital punishment crowd is using that as a way to, as a wedge to stop capital punishment. And uh, they'll, they'll try to sound like, well, we're just wanting to stop it until we fix the system. But that's not their agenda. Their agenda is to end capital punishment because for the most part, many of these defense attorneys, and I know there's got to be some Christians, mature believers out there who are defense attorneys. Uh, I, I haven't met one, but... but Theoretically, I think there's one out there um, that can defend these kind of scumbags and uh, act like they're really innocent. Uh, But they need to be uh, uh, killed. They need to be executed under all the provisions of the law just as soon as possible because that is the divine mandate. As long as you see a rainbow in the sky, you're allowed to eat meat You are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God will not judge the earth by a flood. And we are to exercise capital punishment. This is the most extreme thing that a government can do. Therefore, the delegation of capital punishment stands for the fact that God is now delegating to the human race the responsibility for judicial action. That's what this represents. Prior to this time, God was the ultimate arbiter in the judiciary on planet Earth. But from the flood on, God is no longer physically present on the planet, and man is to clean up his own mess judicially. And there is always failure to do that because men don't want to take the 
responsibility for those actions. Uh, the sixth point, verses 8 through 11, there's a promise of no more universal flood. God will not destroy either the animal kingdom or the human race by a flood. And this is one reason why we know that the, the flood of Noah could not have been simply a local flood because God promises that he will never again destroy mankind by a flood like Noah. So if it was a local flood, there have been many hundreds of thousands, millions, perhaps tens of thousands of local floods since then, and God would have broken his promise. So uh, it's clear from this provision that the flood must have been a universal flood. The seventh provision is the token of the flood, and this is the uh, our token of the covenant, which is the rainbow. Every flood, every covenant has a token. The tree of life was probably the token of the Edenic covenant, and spiritual death the token of the Adamic covenant, and the rainbow is the token of the Noahic covenant. The status of the covenant is that it is still in effect. It is unconditional and has not been removed. When you read through the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament and they announce all of their judgments against the Gentile nations, against the uh, Philistines, against the Egyptians, against the Babylonians, against the Assyrians, against the uh, Moabites and the Edomites and all the non-Jewish, the non-Jewish uh, nations... They are always judged for, the judgment is announced for two reasons. They are violating the Noahic covenant and they are anti-Israel. The anti-Israel brings in the Abrahamic covenant because God said, those who curse you or treat you lightly, I will completely curse or judge. So if they they, uh, treat Israel lightly, then under the provision of the uh, Abrahamic covenant, God will judge them. And if they violate the uh, Noahic covenant, which is to recognize God as their God instead of idolatry, then God judges them. So all judgments against the Gentile nations are based on violation of the Adamic covenant. That brings us to the dispensation of civil government. In Genesis 8.15 to 11.32, and we will cover that under the same eight categories, but we are about out of time, so rather than get started on this dispensation now, I will wait until next Wednesday night. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to see how your grace has been displayed throughout human history. And in each dispensation, you are glorified and you demonstrate that the creature is unable to solve his own problems or to adequately deal with life apart from your grace and your sustenance. We thank you for the fact that over and again we see that you provide everything for us and that there is no need outside of you. So, Father, now we pray that you would help us to understand these things as we look at life around us and understand history from a biblical perspective uh, that we might be challenged by these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.